Now I would invite you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 21. I would really encourage you to turn. You can find that on page 609 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I would encourage you to turn. We're going to read the chapter, and I'm only going to be going back to reread verses 10 to 16. The rest I'll simply be referring to, and it might be beneficial for you to have it open as you track along a little bit as we're going through the chapter, 2 Kings 21. Before we read, uh, let's pray together. Great God, you are the Savior of all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, from those which are esteemed most to those who are esteemed the least, you are the Savior of those who come in Christ. And so we come, we come here to see the most vile of the kings, and yet one who is in the end redeemed, and we pray that you would help us to see, to fear, and to rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 21, starting in the first verse. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their forefathers, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes because they have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end, besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit, so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As for the other events of Manasseh's reign and all he did, including the sin he committed, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? 
Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace garden, the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. Ammon was 22 years old and he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. His mother's name was Meshulameth, daughter of Haruz. She was from Jotba. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the ways of his father. He worshipped the idols his father had worshipped and bowed down to them. He forsook the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated the king in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Ammon, and they made Josiah his son king in his place. As for the other events of Ammon's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? He was buried in his grave in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah, his son, succeeded him as king. There's no doubt as we come into chapter 21, that chapter 21, the reign of Manasseh, is the low point in the history of Judah. It doesn't get any worse than this. And we're really meant to understand that chapter 21 is the low point. For 55 years, 55 years is a very long time. Some of you, when you don't like a president who reigns for four or eight years, feel like that's an awful long time to have a president you don't like. When someone reigns for 55 years, that's far, more, far, far, far worse. And so here we have Manasseh, who's the most wicked of all the kings, most wicked of all the kings in Judah, and arguably more wicked than all the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. He sits on the throne for 55 years. Now, why would God allow such a wicked, terrible man to reign for 55 years? That belongs only to the Lord and to his his understanding. Perhaps it has something to do with what he had said to Hezekiah in the last chapter, the previous chapter, but we'll leave that off for now. As we come into the kind of the, the heart of the author's dealing with Manasseh, we see that he doesn't pull any punches. There's an old jingle for double mint gum. I haven't heard it for a while, but perhaps it's familiar in your ears. Part of it says, double your pleasure, double your fun. That's the statement of the great mint of double mint gum. Double everything, right? Double, 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 double. Well, there's nothing pleasurable, certainly nothing doubly pleasurable or doubly fun about Manasseh, but he does get double everything. As you move into verses 2 to 9, we see that he receives condemnation not only once, but twice. And this twofold condemnation is bracketed by the same statement, which is made two times as well, which bears the same contents. And so the, the author makes sure to double up on just how bad Manasseh is. And as, as one commentator says, the author just goes on and on. He, he unloads an avalanche of condemnation, an avalanche of negative comments upon Hezekiah's son Manasseh, the new king. And the first part of this condemnation comes in quick succession as we read of seven specific sins which Manasseh had committed. And just keep the mind as we move on, it, we see that he rebuilt the high places. He had to rebuild them because his father Hezekiah had torn them down. These are illicit places of worship, places of idolatry, even if in name they were devoted to the Lord. He erected altars to Baal. He brought Baal back into Judah after his father had expelled Baal from Judah. Baal is a fertility cult. And then he builds an Asherah pole. Asherah poles have been cut down by Hezekiah. Now he puts these phallic images back up, this, this part of worship. And he, he goes even farther 
than others before him had gone. He begins to do astral worship, astral like astrology. It's the worship of sun and moon and stars and these, these, heavenly, these heavenly bodies. Worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars as if they were themselves gods, exactly as God himself had said not to do. And then he, he builds altars to these gods in the temple. It's one thing, it's bad enough to build temples to these false gods out there somewhere. But he goes into the very temple of God himself, the temple which Hezekiah had just reopened, and he gets rid of the Lord's stuff and he puts idolatrous altars right there in the very heart of the place where the Lord alone is supposed to be worshipped. He sacrifices his own son in the fire and he consults mediums and spiritists. You keep, the, keep that list in mind, those seven things in mind. And we should go back and, and check these against the the book of Deuteronomy. Remember that the, the book of Kings is set against the backdrop of Deuteronomy. The book of Kings is, is sort of like a 47-chapter long commentary on the history of Israel, viewing it not from a secular perspective, but viewing the history of Israel through God's eyes. And God views the history of Israel through his law, which is given in Deuteronomy. So we go back here just briefly to Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 12. And we see that a number of the sins that Manasseh commits are in direct violation and almost word for word out of Deuteronomy 18. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, remember Deuteronomy is given as the people are just about to go into Canaan. When you come into the land the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or anyone who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Don't, don't sacrifice your children in fire. Don't consult mediums or spiritists. Don't go off consulting omens of sun and moon and stars. Don't do these things. They, these are an abomination. And anybody who does these things is abominable. That, that is hated, viewed as totally disgusting in the sight of the Lord. It, it's very plain that Manasseh, in doing all of these things, is an abomination of a king. And then you move forward into the next series of verses and the author keeps piling on. Manasseh violates three covenants. First, he violates God's covenant with David. He does not love the Lord, his God, with all of his heart as David had loved the Lord with all of his heart. He hates God with all of his heart. He takes every opportunity possible. He creates opportunities to show his hatred for God. He becomes sort of like Ahab. Ahab brought Baal in so to Manasseh brings Baal in, but Ahab was not even as bad as Manasseh. Manasseh is worse than Ahab. The second thing is he breaks the temple covenant. God had promised to David and then to Solomon as well when the temple is dedicated, for so long as my people walk with me in humility and obedience, I will be here. You will not wander around. You won't have to leave this this land I promised to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. For, for as long as you are obedient, you can stay here. But now, instead, Manasseh has done the exact opposite and has broken that covenant. And then he also breaks God's covenant with Moses, which we've just seen from Deuteronomy 18. Manasseh is a, a covenant 
breaking, child sacrificing, idol worshiping, medium consulting, fertility cult supporting, disaster of a king. And he's not only worse than Ahab. Now, that's really something to be worse than Ahab. But he's not only worse than Ahab, he's even worse than the Canaanites. You see that in verses 2 and 9. Verses 2 and 9 bracket this condemnation of, of Manasseh. And it says, both say that he did, he did more evil than the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Now that's pretty terrible. But it's more than just information, it's foreshadowing. What had the Lord done to those nations? What had he done to all those nations that lived in Canaan, that lived in Israel before the Israelites lived there? Well, he kicked them out of the, he kicked them out of the country. He had them destroyed and slaughtered. And so what do you think he will do if God treats them that way? What do you think he will do in this case when his people are even more wicked? Well, the implication is clear that he will do the same thing. But then there's more to come as we move into verses 10 to 16. And I'll read those again. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, the king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes the dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes because they have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me anger from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, we see right away there He did more evil. He did more evil than the Amorites. Now you go back into the book of Joshua and what had happened to the Amorites. Well, when Joshua and the Israelites were fighting against the Amorites, they were winning the victory, but the sun was going down and it wasn't going to be a complete victory. And so Joshua and the Israelites prayed that the sun would stand still so they could finish their destruction of the Amorites. And the sun had stood still and they finished their destruction of the Amorites. Now we read... Now we read that Manasseh is worse than them. That the very people that God miraculously made the sun stand still that they could be destroyed were a more righteous people than Manasseh is in his own time. Remember that Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, to have a sign that he would be spared, the Lord offers to make the sun go backwards ten steps. He he makes time go backwards. Not make-believe like we make time go backwards when daylight savings time ends. It actually goes backwards. But there is no sign of salvation. There's no sun going backwards. There's no sun standing still for Manasseh. Instead, there's only going to be destruction for Manasseh. And so here comes the prophets. And the prophets do what prophets do. They prophesy. And they say, Manasseh has done so many wicked things. And you people have followed him in these wicked things, and now you are going to be destroyed. And they use three sort of of metaphors. The first one they use is that the, the ears of other people will tingle. The ears of other nations will tingle. 
when other peoples hear about the destruction that God brings upon Judah and Jerusalem, they're going to have ears that tingle. They're going to shudder at what they hear. And the second thing is that the Lord will use a, a plumb line. He'll, he'll, he'll use a, a measuring line. You use a plumb line, use a measuring line to make sure that things are straight, that things are square, that they're exactly as they're supposed to be. It's an instrument used to be careful. So this is not going to be some sort of sloppy judgment. The Lord is going to be very meticulous. He's going to be very careful that he follows through on precisely what he says that he's going to do. And the third thing is he, they use a metaphor of a dish. Now what do you do when you do dishes? Right? For those of you who don't have a, a dishwasher, when you're, when you're wiping a dish, what do you do? You, you wipe the filth off of it. You wipe off things that aren't supposed to be there, that, that are impure, that would make it dirty for the next time you want to use the dish. And so here the Lord speaks through his prophets and says, I'm going to wipe my unclean people out of my city so they will no longer pollute my city. My city, Jerusalem, is pure, but these people are impure. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to tip it upside down and shake it off so that there is nothing left of any significance at all. But we shouldn't pile too much on Manasseh. And we should pile a lot on Manasseh, but we shouldn't pile too much on Manasseh because the prophets make very clear that it's not just Manasseh who, who is messed up. Manasseh and his people, they aren't the first people to rebel. And they go on and, and they say this, the prophets say, because they have done evil, they as the people of, of God, because they have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger, from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. From the day they came out of Egypt, the people of God had been sticking their finger in God's eye. Even the very first generation that walked through the Red Sea on the dry ground and saw the ten plagues, as almost as soon as they get across the Red Sea, they begin grumbling. They begin complaining. They make their idols. They refuse to go into the promised land that God had promised them would be theirs. And so what does God make them do? He, he makes them wander for 40 years in the wilderness. He won't let that generation go into his land. And now this generation that begins in his land, he's going to kick them out of his land. And then finally, as if that wasn't enough, as if that wasn't enough, you go into verse 16 and we read that, that Manasseh filled Jerusalem with so much innocent blood that it went from end to end. It filled the city. Now, that, that's, that's a, a metaphor. It, it's not that there was actually so much blood that it was an inch deep all the way across the city of Jerusalem. It, it's just to say that Manasseh shed incredible amounts of innocent blood. The innocent blood would have been of people who still loved God, even though the nation had turned against him. would have been people who were defenseless, perhaps the poor or widows or orphans. He would have slaughtered anybody who was of no use to him or anybody who might have been seen as an enemy to him. He would have killed them. And this most certainly included some of those prophets who had preached against him. In fact, Jewish tradition says that Manasseh executed Isaiah and he executed him by sawing him in half. And that's significant because you, you go forward to Hebrews 11 and we read about that. In Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith Person after person after person from the Old Testament is spoken of who had faith. 
One after another after another, they had faith, they had faith, they had faith. And then there's all kinds of people that, that aren't mentioned or just alluded to. And the, the passage ends, or nearly ends, with this from verses 37 and 38. Of these who suffered for their faith, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, <coughs> afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. When, when you read Kings, you can have a much more robust understanding of those two beautiful verses. Because who is it that wandered in caves wearing, wearing that kind of clothes? But it was Elijah the prophet who hid in caves in the days of Jezebel. And who was it that was sawn in two according to the Jewish people? But Isaiah the great prophet was sawn in two. Manasseh is incredibly wicked. He's the butcher. He's the butcher of Jerusalem, you might say. And the, the final verses add sort of the cherry on top. It, it, it seems like kind of the same old. He, he died and then this person became king. But it, there's something unique about sort of uh, Manasseh's epitaph. All the rest of the kings of Judah just have a, a pretty bland epitaph. But the author sneaks one little thing into Manasseh's in verse 17, and the sins which he committed. It's as if the author, even after listing all of his sins in all 16 of these verses, just can't help himself but mention one more time just how wicked Manasseh was. He takes one more pot shot. And then you hear about Amon, his son. Amon's sort of an afterthought. He becomes king, he reigns a couple years, he's, he's murdered, then the people who murdered him are killed, and his son Josiah becomes king. It's sort of like the author says, Amen, meh, who cares? We need to focus on Manasseh and how wicked he was. It's a depressing story, isn't it? It's an incredibly depressing story. What, what, do, you, what do you do with someone like Manasseh? Well, I, I think that the first thing you do is you catch a warning out of this. We, we, very quickly, we very quickly want to hop to what is pleasant and what is joyful and what is, what is happy, when sometimes what is most needed for God's people is to sit under the weight of a heavy holy warning. Manasseh had so many things going for him. He was the son of Hezekiah, a righteous king. He had all the blessings of Hezekiah's years as king. The temple was open. The people had finally begun to come around to worship God. And Manasseh sat on David's throne. David, the righteous king, he, he had the law of God. He, he was king over God's people. And he was sat in the right city and on the right throne, but he was not right with God. And he had a holy father, but he did not follow the faith of his father. And it ought to be a warning for us that we might sit in these, we might say, holy pews in the, in the right place on the Lord's day, in the right time, sitting under the right word, even singing the, even singing the right words. But if we turn ourselves against God who is just, if we plunge ourselves like Manasseh into idolatry, into abominable practices, if we, if we turn away from the God of our fathers, if we turn away from the righteous one, we too can be expelled. We too can be exiled from His grace. God is the same yesterday and today. If He was the, the punisher of sins 
in the days of Manasseh, then he is still the punisher of sins today as well. Don't, don't mistake radio Christianity for biblical Christianity. Radio Christianity, positive and encouraging. Everything is happy. Real biblical Christianity is far deeper, far more dangerous, and far more glorious than radio Christianity. Because the God, the God of the Bible, is big and holy and just. And He sees your sin. But He is also gracious to forgive all that sin that he sees even more clearly than you see. But sometimes we must sit under the holy warning of Scripture really to appreciate the bigness, the danger, and the glorious grace of our God. But there's an unspoken part of Manasseh's life in Kings that we should draw attention to as well. The author of Kings passes by because it doesn't fit his, his spirit-inspired purposes and because he assumes that we have access already to other records, which, praise God, we do from the book of Chronicles. Where we read not so much any longer about the nation, but about Manasseh himself. And as you turn into Second Chronicles 33, verses 10 to 17, we read this about Manasseh. Man- Manasseh finds himself in some pretty big trouble. Because Manasseh, after Hezekiah died, and Hezekiah had resisted the Assyrians, Manasseh gets buddy-buddy with the Assyrians, but the Assyrians do what the Assyrians do. They're treacherous, and they decide to come back for him. And the Lord speaks to him. This is what we read, starting in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks, and bound him with chains of bronze, and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel." Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Manasseh is terrible. He's the worst king of Judah ever. And he bears the consequences for that. He's hauled off to Assyria with hooks. Sometimes the Assyrians would put hooks through the the jaws or through the nose of of captives, and they would literally drag them off into exile. They'd bind them in chains. And so Manasseh finds himself hauled off into a foreign land, and he goes to Babylon. The reason he went to Babylon is the king was going to have a parade. Babylonians were always prone to try to rebel against the Assyrians. And so they would have put Manasseh on display. They would have shown him in all of his, all of his inglorious defeat. And they would have marched him through the, through the middle street of the city and said, look, another fallen king, such is what happens to those who oppose the Assyrians. Manasseh would have been utterly humiliated. 
And in the midst of this humiliation, what does he do? But he prays. That's all he could do at this point. And certainly it's all that he should have done. He prays. He recognizes the futility of all of his idolatry. He recognizes the worthlessness of everything that he had before. And he prays. He humbles himself. He asks for the Lord to save him. And that's precisely what happens. I don't want you to gloss over this. I, I don't want you to gloss over either part of the story of Manasseh. We can't forget the first part, the hop to the second part, and the second part is not, is not great unless we have the first part in mind. This, this is Manasseh. This, this humble, penitent man is the same man who put altars in the temple of God. This is the same man who, who consulted spirits, who worshipped the, the sun and the moon and the stars. This is the, the same man who killed the prophets, probably even including the prophet Isaiah. This is the same man who worshipped false gods and sacrificed his son to the false gods that is that is wretched i want to share some details not not to not to make you squeamish or anything like that i just want you to to think about how terrible what what manasseh is is to to sacrifice children in the ancient world they would often have an an idol and the idol would have arms out like this and on those arms would be a, a metal basin of some sort of metal. And they would superheat the basin with fire underneath. And all the priests of these false gods would gather around and sing and shout and chant. And the, the parents would come forward to present this ultimate sacrifice to this god, to manipulate this god into giving them blessing. And as the priests shouted and chanted, they would throw the child onto the superheated metal basin and drown out his cries and his screams with with their shouts and their chants. Manasseh did that. That's disgusting. But here is Manasseh later in a foreign land utterly humiliated and humbled and he prays. And the Lord has him back. The Lord will have any humble person and so this wretched Manasseh receives new life and restoration in the grace of God. It is Manasseh's humility that defines him forever in God's sight, not his sin. Manasseh was a disgusting person, but the Bible is full of disgusting people, isn't it? And oftentimes it's the most disgusting of those people who receive God's grace. You see this time and time and time again. It, it was the, the Canaanite prostitute Rahab who, who shelters the spies and finds herself in time in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. And it was the tax collector Matthew, an idolatrous traitor of a man, who is called by Jesus to be not only a disciple, but the author of the first book in the New Testament. And it was the sinful woman in Luke 7 who lives a life probably very similar to the one that Rahab had lived, but she comes to the Savior recognizing the grace that only He can offer. She breaks the jar of this incredibly expensive perfume, pours it over Him, and wipes His feet with her hair. 
forever remembered, not for her sinful past, but remembered for her act of extreme worship. And there's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who hated the Lord with a hatred which goes beyond expression. The murderer of Stephen. The one who was vengeful and hateful and murderous. The one who wanted nothing more than to, to quench out the flame of the church of Jesus Christ. And yet God gives him grace. He becomes the second most influential man in the history of Western civilization, the most successful ministry the world, a missionary the world has ever seen, and an author of a huge chunk of the New Testament. All these people, wretches in their own right, saved by the grace of God. God was the same in the time of Manasseh as he is today. If he was the punisher of the wicked then, he's the punisher of the wicked now. If he was the savior of sinners then, he's the savior of sinners now. You know, there's a, a very famous person in the news lately. I, I felt like I would be remiss, especially given the text before us, if I, I didn't mention him. Uh, singer, songwriter, fashion designer, hip-hop uh, singer, rapper, his name is Kanye West, an international superstar, one of the most recognizable people, at least in the secular world, in our, in our own day. And he, his own admission, was a, a vulgar, immoral, self-centered person. He, he sought after all the things that the world had to offer. He was he was a, a vain and puffed up, and these are really all using his words, or at least his sentiments. He was drug addicted. He, he nearly lost his mind pursuing all of his worldly ambitions. In fact, he married a woman who was famous, and famous for all the wrong reasons. But he's found grace. He no longer produces vulgar music. His family has been baptized. He invites gospel preachers. I'm not talking about radio gospel preachers. I'm not talking about positive, encouraging health and wealth Joel Osteen preachers. I, I'm talking about dangerous preachers, preachers who preach the real gospel, who preach sin and repentance and hope in Christ. He, he invites them to preach at his concerts to people who would otherwise perhaps never hear the gospel. He was a, a disgusting person in the most right sense of the word, but now child of God, the same as you and me. He said, I think he, perhaps he said it this way. I think it's the best way. He said, he said, God is using me to show off. Isn't that the way God is? You, you, can almost hear, you can almost hear the rhetorical questions flowing from the mouth of the Lord. Oh, oh, you don't think I can take a hooker and put her in the biological line of my son? Just watch me. You don't think I can take that vulgar, nasty, murderous, violent wretch of a king and change his heart? Just watch me. You don't think I can take a tax collector who's a traitor against his people, against my people, who's dishonest? You don't think I can take him and make him a disciple and an author of Scripture? Just watch me. You, you don't think I can take the one who murdered the first Christian martyr? You don't think I can take the one who hates me with a hatred that exceeds all other hatreds? You don't think I can take the one man who most violently wants to destroy my church and make him the most effective missionary in the history of my church? Just watch me. You don't think I can take a, a vulgar, idolater rapper and turn him into a venue for my gospel? Just watch me. Manasseh 
was a terrible, no-good, idol-worshipping, sun-killing, prophet-murdering, temple-defiling, nation-destroying, humiliation of a king. But at the end of the day, I will see him in glory. He's the anti-Solomon. Solomon begins, you begin the book of Kings with Solomon. Solomon starts well, he starts with the Lord, he ends poorly, he ends with idols. Manasseh is the exact opposite. He, he begins terribly, he begins with idols, and he ends well, he ends with the Lord. I am far more certain of seeing Manasseh in glory than of Solomon. Can you fathom that? Such is the grace of our God. But don't miss verse 17. Don't miss verse 17. Because at the, end, at the end of all of it, we read, As for the other events of Manasseh's reign and all he did, including the sin he committed, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Yes, that's good. But you hop back one sentence from there. And the people did away with the idols, but... Sometimes but is a glorious word, and sometimes it's a terrible word, but they didn't do away with the high places. They still kept, they still kept a little bit of their idolatry. Idolatry which Manasseh had brought back in. And his son Amon becomes king. And Amon was just like the old Manasseh, not like the new Manasseh. Manasseh, for all of his faults, becomes a child of the living God. But he couldn't erase 50 plus years of terrible spiritual legacy just like that. But even still, Manasseh is one of God's greatest trophies, if we might speak that way. I think Manasseh might be, in some sense, the Paul of the Old Testament. Paul says this of him, of himself in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I, I hear people quote that referring to themselves. I'm the worst of sinners. No, you're not. You're not the worst of sinners. Paul isn't saying this as if this applies to every person. Paul is saying, no, literally, he was the worst of sinners. And he says that for a reason. He's not trying to be uber super humble. He, he's trying to be honest to make an important, salvific, theological point. He says, but I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, if Paul can be saved, anyone can be saved. If Manasseh can repent and be restored. Anyone can be restored. But if you are to be restored, you must do as Manasseh did. Humble yourself. Lay yourself bare in utter humiliation and sin before the holy God and ask. Ask, not offer, ask for forgiveness. And put away all the idols. Cast them out of your heart as he cast them out of the city. You must be a man or a woman of faith. Such was Manasseh, such was Paul. But don't wait. Take the second warning from the passage. Manasseh couldn't erase all those decades of sin and their effects on other people. Don't wait until you have done damage to all those around you with your idols and your sin to make it right. 
But begin to labor now, today. Begin to labor now, today, to leave behind a spiritual legacy of fruitfulness worth following. Let's pray. God, we come again. We come as sinners. We come as those perhaps who have not sinned as heinously or as grievously as some who have come before us and comforted by that because we see that you have grace even for prostitutes and murderers and tax collectors, the vulgar. And we thank you. We can come before and ask for forgiveness and receive it. So that's what we do. We ask for forgiveness, trusting that when we ask, you will give. We pray as well that we would not, would not make the error of Manasseh of being wicked across decades and leaving behind generations who have seen almost nothing but wickedness laziness, prayerlessness, wordlessness, coldness, and idolatry. But cause us to live in a way that we leave an example worth following for generations to come, that they might embrace the faith of their fathers and come to know the God of their fathers. We pray that you would bless us with these graces available to us in Christ alone. Amen.